0: Well, good morning. Please stay standing, grab your Bibles, open them up to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to dive into a fun part of Scripture. So, Hebrews chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 9. And I am super excited for the theology class that's starting in a couple weeks. Sometimes I feel like I bite off more than I can chew. Um, theology is definitely one of those areas where it's like, holy moly, what have I gotten myself into? But um, God is going to show up for each and every one of those classes. So I'm excited for that and happy to have some of you join um, with that. But we're, we're looking forward to it. Again, in two weeks, that'll be starting up. But here we go. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9. We're going to read through a portion of chapter 6 as well. So, and being made perfect... He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness." Since he is a child, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their power of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Chapter six, verse one, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washing the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You can go ahead and be seated. So a big chunk of Hebrews that we're going to run through this morning uh, the purpose of this message, and I usually don't start right off with the purpose, I typically like to build that up, but the purpose of this message today is to identify a possible problem. Uh, we're going to issue a warning or look at a warning that was issued about that problem and then hopefully we're going to offer some encouragement in how to overcome a, uh, this supposed problem. Okay? So if you're a student of the Bible, you may have some thoughts about what I just said. Your first thought may be along the lines of, well, yeah, that's the pattern of Hebrews. It identifies a problem, issues a warning, and then offers some encouragement. And you're absolutely right in that. I'm not doing anything new here. I'm I'm literally taking the layout that the text has given us as our model for this morning. But this text, even better than some of the other books of the Bible, actually lends itself to following that kind of a model. And another thought you may be having is that I'm getting ready to break down some of the most controversial passages in the entire New Testament. And if you add a, similar or a thought similar to that, you're either thinking I'm crazy, that I'm overly ambitious, or, this is typically where I would fall, you're going to be hypercritical of everything I say from here on out. <laughs> because you're going to make sure, you're going to line it up to what your personal views already are. And you're going to see if I agree with you or not. And so, um, some of you, though, might just simply be wondering how much you have to endure before you get to go to lunch or get out of here, right? So whatever, your th- whatever thoughts you're having right now, if they're similar to anything that I just stated, aside from the whole lunch thing, um, you are what I like to call a Bible nerd. And so you're probably a bunch of Bible nerds. And that's okay, I mean that in a loving way. I myself like to refer to myself as a Bible nerd as well. And so, um, again, if you're thinking about lunch, you're not quite there yet, that's okay. Someday maybe you'll get the title of Bible nerd as well. But, so some of you know exactly what I'm talking about right now. Some of you may be completely confused. And that's okay. Actually, it was kind of intentional. Okay? At the end of today, at the end of our discussion <clears throat> It should be clear that this little brief introduction or this brief conversation in and of itself is somewhat of an illustration. The point of or the um, purpose of Hebrews we 're going to jump into and we 're going to dive through, but before we can fully understand that the text that we are looking at right now, is we're jumping into the middle of a controversy, we're jumping into the middle of a complex book, we have to first develop just a little bit of background, a little bit of understanding. So since we haven't been reading up to this point, it's important to discuss some of the message that has been relayed so far. So Hebrews is an interesting book, unlike some of the other letters of the Bible, we don't know who wrote it, we don't know exactly when they wrote it. We don't know specifically who they wrote it to. But it is very clear as you read through Hebrews, not only does it belong, but it's actually an essential book for all believers to truly understand. This letter is very, very Jewish. Many of the illustrations are going to be developed throughout the entire book, and they primarily are going to focus on Old Testament Um, discussions. Specifically they're focusing on Abraham's interaction with Melchizedek as we just read about and with the exodus generation or the wilderness generation. Those Hebrews that were freed from Egypt and they were obviously prevented from going into Canaan. In fact these two themes actually run throughout the entire book or the entire letter of Hebrews. So the author is drawing on the audience's understanding of these events as he is continuously contrasting these historical circumstances with the circumstances of these Jewish believers. And I said we don't know the specific audience, but we do know that this was entitled the book to the Hebrews or the letter to the Hebrews. And it's written more as a sermon and it's d- given directly to Jewish people that had come to follow Christ. And so that's why it's really focusing on their history, their culture. And that's important for us to understand and, and keep that context in mind. So the overall theme of Hebrews is to encourage believers to stay their course. Philippians three twelve through 14 tells us, Man, isn't that the truth? Our encouragement to persevere, it only happens if we're focused on Jesus. That's where that encouragement comes from. See, there's more than 20 names or titles of Jesus given throughout this letter. Jesus is stacked up against the old covenantal system to show that he is better in every way. This echoes Jesus' own words in Matthew 5.17 when he said that he did not come to do away with the law but to fulfill the law. So here are just a a couple quick highlights. Jesus is superior to the Old Testament prophets. Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus was superior to Moses and Joshua. Hebrews 3.5 and 6 tells us, Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. See, Moses was, Moses was merely a servant, but Jesus was God's son. He was better in everywhere, in every way. Jesus was a superior priest. Through Jesus, we have a superior covenant and through Jesus we see a superior sacrifice. So those are just a few of the things that Hebrews has already laid out or the author has already discussed. The point is Hebrews is all about Jesus. So in fact, one of the study sources that I used as I was putting this together says that Hebrews actually plugs a hole in what we as Christians believe. There is so much Christology in Hebrews that without this book, we wouldn't fully have a, a, a full understanding of Jesus as son, savior, priest, king, brother, and ultimately as God himself. So Hebrews is extremely important, as I already mentioned, for us as believers to truly understand. So lastly, before we actually get started here, um, some of you are like, wait, we already started. We're like 10 minutes in. No, we, we're, we're, just, we're just warming up. But lastly... Hebrews doesn't have salvation in view, okay? at least not the beginning of our salvation. This is a letter to believers, so it's taken for granted that they are already saved or that salvation has already happened. Its overall theme is a theme of inheritance. Hebrews is encouraging believers to finish strong, to endure the, to the end, and to gain their heavenly inheritance. Mary was up here and I... I I swear she was looking at my notes when she was giving the announcements this morning. But it's to endure. It's to press on. It's to finish the race. So there is an interesting theological concept that's called the paradigm of salvation. The developer of this idea breaks salvation into three categories or three different phases. It says that the past was focused on our justification. This is the process we were separated from the penalty of sin. So through justification, we're separated from the penalty of sin. The present, so where we are in our salvation presently, is sanctification. This is the process where we are currently separated from the power of sin. And then the future, our future portion of, of salvation, is glorification, where we will ultimately be separated from the presence of sin altogether. So the purpose of this paradigm is to understand what Christ did through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's continual and ongoing in each of our lives. We have been justified, we are being sanctified, and we will one day be glorified. Somebody please say amen. Amen. Thank you. Man, that was was good stuff. That was up there. It was even up there for you to read it. Hebrews spends little time speaking of justification, that first portion of our salvation, and spends most of the time on sanctification and glorification. So again, justification is what happens to us when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. All condemnation, guilt, and penalty of sin have been taken from us and placed on Jesus. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Sanctification, again, is what happens after we have placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It is the continual work of us being set apart from the world. 1 Corinthians 3.18, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the, who is the Spirit. All right, so that was all, like I said, by way of introduction. Now we can actually jump into those verses that we just read. So again, verse 9, we're going to read just a chunk here. Verse 9 through 11. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become Dull of hearing. So, leading up to this point, chapter 5 has been developing Jesus as the high priest. He's been contrasted with Aaron, and here in verse 10, the author is identifying that Jesus is the high priest, but not in the sense of Aaron or the Levitical priests, but instead according to the order of Melchizedek. Now Melchizedek is a mysterious figure, and the author is going to use him as an illustration here to make clear the point of his rebuke and warning. Then he actually comes back to him in chapter 7 as well. But Melchizedek as a high priest predates that Levitical system. He's found in Genesis 14, and he's found at that time interacting with Abraham. And then we get to Psalm 110, and it references the order of Uh, Melchizedek that priestly order and you know that's pretty much all we have or that really is all we have about Melchizedek until we get to the book of Hebrews so in in scripture he's a very mysterious very limited character of what we actually know and then again here in Hebrews uh, we get him introduced to us here and then in verse or chapter 7 we're going to go back to him and um, the the author will break down that order of Melchizedek even more So looking again at at some of these, it says, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So this is where our author is starting to issue a rebuke to the audience of this letter. He's saying that there's some things that they need to discuss and that those things are hard to explain, but not because the explanation is necessarily difficult, but because the listeners have become dull of hearing. He's saying, the problem isn't me, guys, the problem is you. So I've got something to say, I need to say it, but you're too dense to understand what it is I need to say. That's the nutshell, or that's the paraphrase, I guess. So in just a minute, the author is going to issue a warning, but before that, he kind of goes into this rebuke. It's actually the third warning of the book, and then there's going to be two additional warnings that would follow later on. This warning is going to be focused on spiritual stagnation, stalling out or staying in the same spiritual state when you should be moving moving to a more mature state. Before this warning can be issued, the author needs to point out that although they need to be warned, their own stagnation has left them in a place where they're unaware of their own need for that warning. So here comes the actual rebuke starting in verse 12. He says for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil." So we're going to settle into these verses here just for a little bit, because there's a lot here to kind of digest. That was a pun, see? We're talking about milk and meat and food and everything. I said digest. It's not funny if I have to explain it. You guys got to, you got to wake up with me. Come on. So remember that the author just finished up saying that he has some important things to discuss that the Hebrews aren't ready to understand those things because they are dull of hearing. So now he's expanding on what that problem actually is. So we'll break down each one of those. In verse 12 he says, For though by this time. So there's a certain amount of time that has passed and these believers have not progressed in their faith or they've relapsed in their faith. They're still getting, on by, or getting by on milk. The first principles of the oracles of God is what that milk is referencing. So when they should have moved on to meat or solid food, they're still dealing with the first principles or the milk of their salvation. So you can sense that there's a level of frustration in the author's statements here. He wants to impart wisdom and encouragement, but instead he has to address complacency and stagnation. Chuck Smith called this arrested spiritual development. He believed, as I do, that this is one of the most common diseases in the church. People come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ and then just stay there. The beginning of their journey becomes the end of their journey. Jay Vernon McGee puts it this way, says, and I wish I could do his voice, but I can't, but it is tragic that there are people who have been members of the church and have been saved for years and they are still going around saying goo, goo, goo. They have nothing to contribute but little baby talk. All they want is to be burped periodically. Now couldn't you just hear his voice as I was reading it? I say J. Vernon McGee and you go right into his voice. Yeah, he he runs continuously in my mind. So So this is where each one of us needs to get a little reflective. See, the author of Hebrews is calling out those that have stagnated in their walk. Here's the issues. We have dull of hearing, unable to teach, need to be retaught, unskilled in the word of righteousness spiritual senses are being aren't being exercised and they're unable to discern good from evil that's a pretty big laundry list of issues when they should be moving on to other things so dull of hearing back in verse 11 the author makes that statement we've referenced it several times so this would be the first indication of your spiritual state If you come to the place where you are unable to hear the word, read the word, receive the word, and act on the word, you are in a a state of spiritual regression. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it, and even now you are not ready for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? The second issue was is that they were unable to teach. See, as we grow in faith, we are all to become teachers of the word. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going like, to get everyone in line and you're going to have a turn up here preaching necessarily. But what it does mean is that a principle that we find in 1 Peter 3.15-17. through 17, Now, those verses, if you know them, it's typically given as an apologetic verse. Always be ready. Give a defense. But that word defense really is just simply testimony. And the idea is that there are people that will benefit from your testimony, your experiences. And it is our responsibility as believers to share our experiences, to teach others how we have applied the Bible to our lives and how God has guided our paths. So if you're a baby Christian, either because you are legitimately a baby, you're new to the faith, or because you have spiritually stalled out, you can't teach others from your experiences, at least not biblically. And this is the important part. See, if you are an immature or baby Christian, and you maybe not even realize that about yourself, and you start trying to teach from your experiences, you're not going to give biblical counsel. You may have a lot of ideas and advice. But it's going to be worldly and it will end up doing more damage than good. The advice that we as believers need to give to other people, the experiences we need to share with other people are those experiences where God has been doing a work in our lives. Where he has been moving and guiding and demonstrating his love for us through those experiences. That's what we share. 2 Timothy 4.2 says preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, Re- reprove, rebu- rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Don't think for one second that this verse only applies to pastors and teachers. All believers are to share the gospel and to make disciples. That's the great commission. That's the entire point of your faith. Share it with others and then disciple or teach them each and every one of us. The next issue was that they needed to be retaught. So instead of teaching others, these believers have gone back to the place where they are in need of remedial training. Warren Wiersbe says that we begin the Christian life on the basis of his finished work on earth, but we grow in the Christian life on the basis of his unfinished work in heaven. So we move on from those earthly things that Jesus did, the gospel, And we as believers, as we mature, we should be continuing to focus on the things that he is currently doing in heaven. Remember, he says he goes to prepare a place, then he's going to come back and get us. He's not sitting there doing nothing. He is waiting, or he is about his work. We should be about his work as well. See, none of us are to remain in Christian kindergarten. We learn the basics, we learn the ABCs of our faith, and then we continue to build on that foundation. We go back and we check on the foundation from time to time, we repair any cracks there might be, but we keep building. Just another plug, that theology class could be a good place to plug or fill those cracks in. But anyways, some of us have laid a foundation and then we start putting another foundation on top of it, and then another, and then another, and then another, and your whole Christian walk becomes laying a foundation. There's nothing that's ever built on top of that. So the spiritual equivalent is when someone says, I've been a Christian for 10 years, but in reality, they've been a Christian for one year, 10 years in a row. Does that make sense? See, they've never moved on from the maturity of a one-year-old Christian. That one, excuse me, I was gonna read something I already read. Unskilled in the word of righteousness. This is the next issue that, Uh, they were dealing with. So you don't know your Bible. And this is going to go along with the next one. So we're going to just kind of lump these two together. The next one being spiritual senses are not being exercised. So the idea here is that you're unskilled in the word and your spiritual senses are not being exercised. So 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 8 says, Have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And then Ephesians 6:12 reminds us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. When we are imma, excuse me, when we are immature believers, we aren't demonstrating the fruit of the spirit. We aren't utilizing our spiritual gifts. And the entire spiritual element of our life is either non-existent or it's completely misunderstood. So we have to exercise those spiritual senses. Wiersbe says, uh, in a long, or along lines with this, he says, We either go forward and claim God's blessing, or we go backward and wander about aimlessly. And That's a reference even to the wilderness generation. Next issue was that uh, they were unable to discern good from evil. And this is the, probably the most dangerous component of spiritual infancy. See, it's somewhat a culmination of all of the other points that the author had previously made. When we are babies, we pretty much are willing to put anything into our mouths. When we are spiritual babies, we pretty much do the same thing. We get spiritually hungry and we start just grabbing anything and everything that we can. See, it's a recipe for false doctrine, for incorrect theology, for incorrect application of scripture to flood our lives. If we don't have a solid foundation that we are regularly checking and making sure it's stable, if we aren't progressing and teaching others, and if we don't know the word um, and we aren't exercising those spiritual gifts, then we are unable to discern good from evil and we will be led astray. So it's extremely important as an infant Christian or a baby Christian, whether you are brand new or you've fallen back into that state, to set that foundation and then to move forward and to be able to verify everything. And I always say it pretty much anytime I'm up here, we go back to the Bereans, Acts 17. Verifying the scripture, making sure that what's being taught is correct and it lines up with the scripture. You can't do that if you don't know scripture. So you have to be able to to do that. And the only way to do it is to know scripture. So, how do we know if we are consuming milk or meat? Well, here's some questions that you need to be asking yourself. Are you self-focused or others-minded? See, we are all selfish. That's part of our sin, and it's part of our uh, human nature. But when you come to church, are you coming as an empty vessel needing to be filled up, Or are you coming as an overflowing cup ready to pour into others? Is church your refueling station? Are you coming here on empty week after week? Or are you just topping off the tank when you get here? If you're showing up on empty, you may be an immature believer. Because that would indicate there's nothing else going on from Sunday to Sunday. That there's no other place that you're developing your spiritual uh, life. Next question, are you a student of the Bible? Are you in your Bible daily? Are you stuck reading the same few chapters or books over and over again? You really like 1 Corinthians so that's all you read and you finish it and you start it over and you're not willing to dive into anything else because you don't think you'll understand it or you don't want to hear the message that might be there. When you read the Bible, is it more work or blessing? Are you able to make connections from one portion of scripture to another? Are you able to teach yourself through a Bible study? Next question, are you a prayer warrior? Do you pray as 1 Timothy 2.1 instructs us to pray? Are you giving God thanks in your prayer, praying for others, worshiping God through prayer, and taking your needs to God? Or are you just simply focusing on that last part, taking your needs to God? Are you praying for and with other believers one on one in prayer meetings etc is prayer difficult oh excuse me is prayer your default response to challenges and successes when a challenge arises do you immediately go to prayer or is that an afterthought when successes arise do you immediately go to prayer to thank god or is that an afterthought are you a servant or a consumer See, when you come to church, are you serving or are you expecting to be served? When you are in conversation with others, are you listening or are you doing most of the talking? Are are your needs more important than the needs of other people? It got real quiet in here. (laughs) If we find ourselves dealing with one or more of these issues of spiritual immaturity, then what do we do? So if you're dull of hearing, talk less. The best way to start listening is to stop yapping. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I won't name names. James 1, 19 through 20 tells us, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. If you're not in a position where you can teach others from your own experiences, you need to start having biblical experiences. Pray, pray, pray. Join a home group or another small group where you can share how God is ministering to you. Take someone out to coffee with the intention to discuss a particular portion of scripture and how God is teaching you through that scripture. Romans 1 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. If your issue is that you need to be retaught, start taking notes, start listening to sermons outside of Sunday mornings, read books, read commentaries, and I know that's terrifying for some of you. Begin to memorize scripture and ask questions. Earlier in Hebrews, the author says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. If your problem is unskilled in the works or the word of righteousness, the only way to overcome that is to read your Bible. There is no substitute. Be cautious with who you listen to or what you read outside of the Bible. Develop and maintain a foundation before starting to branch out. Read John. Read Acts. Read First and Second Corinthians. Read Psalms and Proverbs daily. Psalm 119, I have, or verse 11. I have stored up, for your word, stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. If your spiritual senses are not being exercised, then start Exercising. Start serving in some capacity to figure out what your spiritual gifts are. Spiritual fruit can only be produced when we are living in the spirit. Spiritual sense can only be exercised while living in the spirit. Pray for the Holy Spirit to refill and revitalize you. <clears throat> Colossians three twenty three and 24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Remember that we are not meant to do this alone. Later in this book, the author is going to pin a very significant verse. It's been actually one of our guiding verses here at CCSC through this entire strange pandemic period. That's Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We all have elements that we need to work on, areas that we can continue to mature, and we cannot be doing it alone. Your entire spiritual life is focused on interacting and doing life with other people. Now we move on to chapter 6. Okay, so here was the rebuke. Now we're going to flow through here. So chapter six, verse one. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, everything we just talked about, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrines of, back, of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. So remember, the author is still trying to get to these complex issues, but he had to lay down his rebuke first. Here he is saying that even though they need to go back to basics, he isn't going to do that with them. He's moving on. He's now going to be teaching where they should be. No more babying is basically what he's saying. So the phrase, let us go on, literally means let us be carried forward. The author is moving forward and he's taking these believers with him even if it means that he's dragging them, kicking and screaming like a bunch of babies. So remember our context. As we move into this next chunk of verses, this is where we can kind of get into some controversy. In fact, verses 4 through 6 actually are going to have five major interpretations, and then each of those interpretations has two or three variations of it. So there's about 16 to 18 different ways that theologians and Bible scholars try to interpret and break down verses 4 through 6. So I figured uh, second service will just join us and we'll go through. No, I'm teasing. We're not going to hit all of those, obviously. See, nobody seems to be in agreement what these verses are actually saying but I believe that we can set aside a big portion of that controversy and we can look at the context both in the sense of what the author has been talking about and how he has been using the Old Testament and we can come away with a very applicable understanding of what these verses are actually trying to say. So our context, remember, is twofold. Everything we have looked at through uh, Psalm, or not Psalm, Hebrews 5, 9-14 was speaking of sanctification, not salvation. That's important to remember. These are believers who are struggling with stagnation. Everything that he just mentioned or discussed was talking about moving forward and maturing in the faith. The author is going to issue a warning about remaining stagnant. Some of us may ask, well, what's the big deal? If I'm saved, so what if I stay as a baby? The warning, I believe, is going to be dealing with that attitude. The second part of our context is going back to that wilderness generation, the Exodus generation. So we're going to break it down a bit more as we move through this. So verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the son of god and put him to an open shame. So the controversy arises because most attempts at analyzing this passage fall into the trap of putting theology before exegesis. This means that many times they are reading into this passage what they want it to say rather than looking at what it actually says. See, there's three significant words or phrases that cause issue. Impossible, the phrase fall away, and then towards the end, renew them again to repentance. So the controversy, the debate, the argument that's gone on for literally hundreds of years is what do those phrases mean? See, if you find yourself confused or lost through the next few minutes, that's okay. You're just proving the Hebrew author's point. The controversy of these verses revolves around the idea of salvation. Some argue that believers are genuine, belie- or that these believers are genuine believers, and that the warning is, is that if they remain in a state of infancy, they will ultimately turn back to Judaism, thus committing apostasy and losing their salvation. This is based on the idea that fall away means apostasy, that impossible means impossible, but specifically for the apostate, that it's impossible for the apostate to renew them again to repentance, meaning that once you commit apostasy, you're unable to repent from it. But others in the debate argue that fall away basically means to be found out. They were professing believers that were not actually saved, and so when things got back or bad, they turned back to Judaism, revealing that they were not actually Christians to begin with. Once they do this, it becomes impossible for them to truly become Christian. So both of these arguments seem to have a lot of issues exegetically, linguistically, and also theologically. First and foremost, the text provides no indication of, of the audience not being Christian. Everything that we read in chapter 5, but everything even before that, indicates that these are true, genuine believers second the context is about maturing and developing one's faith there has been no transition or indication that the subject has moved on to salvation and third fall away literally means fall or stumble see the greek word used here it's parapipto it's unique it's actually the only place in the entire new testament where this form of the word is used Outside of the Bible, in other contemporary Greek writings, the word has been found approximately 180 times, and only one instance out of 180 that was outside of the Bible did it carry the meaning to be lost, and it wasn't talking about salvation, because it wasn't a biblical text. Other forms of the word are used throughout the New Testament, and when they are, they simply mean to fall or stumble. And one specific example is when Jesus falls to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane. They use this uh, a variation of this same Greek word. so we 're not out of the words quite yet <clears throat> I'm going to present here in just a minute the the one of the other interpretations that I think really settles into what the context is that the author is talking about so Some of you may be thinking, if fall away literally means to stumble or fall down, which are familiar figures of speech for the believer, then why does repentance become impossible? Our entire theology is if you fall down, if you stumble, if you sin, you repent. So what would it be here if you fall away that would be making repentance impossible? I'm glad that you're thinking those questions. It lets me know that you're still tracking what I'm actually saying, and it also lets me know that I can throw a little meat at you and watch you squirm and see how you kind of go through some of this. So let's turn very quickly to Psalm 95. We're, gonna, we're getting close to wrapping up here. But, O come, let us worship and bow down. This is verses six through 11. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Here's a warning here. Today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest." In Hebrews 3, the author starts off a second warning by bringing up the Exodus generation, this generation that we just read about. And he's actually quoting in Hebrews 3 this portion of Psalm 95. Through chapters 3 and 4, this second warning is placing emphasis on God's rest or his inheritance. Without going back and fully developing that, we need to understand that these warnings, there's again five of them throughout Hebrews, they're all building on one another. It's reasonable to understand that the Exodus generation that was laid out here in warning number two is still in view when the author gets to the context here in uh, warning number three that we're looking at right now. So let's break this down and find some some parallels. And they're going to quickly fly through on the screen, but the Israelites were saved from bondage, their bondage being Egypt. And we know that Egypt is a symbol of sin. The Hebrew believers that were the audience of this book They were believers that were saved from their sin. That would be uh, their salvation. The Israelites experienced God working in their lives. The Hebrew believers have experienced God working in their lives. The Israelites experienced doubt that ultimately led to fear. The Hebrew believers experienced doubt that ultimately led to fear. That's why they're considering going back to Judaism to begin with. The Israelites received an oath from God making it impossible to enter the promised land, their inheritance. The Hebrew believers, by remaining in their infant state, are at risk. And this is why it's a warning. They're at risk of making it impossible to receive their inheritance. So when you go through this, you see the, a parallel from beginning to end of that generation, the wilderness generation, and the generation here that's the audience of the book of Hebrews. Both groups were saved. Both experienced God. Both had doubt, fear, and stalled growth. One group missed out on their inheritance, and the other is now being warned not to miss out on theirs. So if we go back to Hebrews 6 and 7, or back to Hebrews 6 verses 7 and 8, offer support of this particular interpretation. So for the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. We as believers produce fruit. These verses remind us that we will either produce good fruit or bad fruit. J. Vernon McGee says, again in his voice, if the believers... If the believer's life brings forth fruit, it receives blessing from God. If it brings forth thorns and briars, it is rejected. He goes on to say, Therefore, the Christian has something to show forth, and that is the thing which is to be judged. If he is going to continue as a baby and be nothing but a troublemaker, turning people from Christ instead of to Christ, there will certainly be no reward. In fact, there will be shame at Christ's appearing. The whole point of the warning is to remind these faltering Christians to persevere to their inheritance. First Corinthians 3:13 through15 says, each one's, "Each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward." If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The theme of this entire section is maturing as believers. It's not about salvation, it's about what we should be doing once we have salvation. In Hebrews 12, the author continues stressing the idea of enduring to the end so that we may receive our inheritance. Hebrews 12:1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus, in his parables, instructs us to be busy about our father's business and to be anticipating his imminent return. If you remain in a spiritually immature cycle, you are squandering the calling that God has placed on your life. Some of us will use the excuse of, well, I don't know what my calling is. Yes, you do. If you are a believer, your calling is clear. Let me break it down for you. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love others as yourself. Share the gospel and make disciples. That's the calling on each and every one of our lives. We all have that same calling. God will give us specifics, and you may move circumstances or locations, but that calling doesn't change. Regardless of where you are and what you're doing, this is what we should all be doing. And you can't do this if you're constantly crying over milk. You have to mature in your faith. <clears throat> There's a passage that's actually been shared quite a bit over the last month through the week of prayer that happened back in the beginning of September through the marriage conference and I even shared it through announcements a few weeks ago but Ephesians 5 5 through 17 look carefully then how you walk not as unwise but as wise making the best use of time other versions say redeeming the time because the days are evil therefore do not be foolish but understand what the will of the Lord is the days are evil As they get darker and darker, we get closer and closer to Jesus' return. Don't squander your calling while you are on earth. Don't jeopardize your heavenly inheritance. That's the call for all of us. That's the the challenge and the warning that was here for the Hebrew believers, and it's for us today as well. Grow in maturity and run your race. Closing out our portion of Hebrews 6, I'm just going to read 9 through 12. I I want to leave you with the encouragement of the author. So, But beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name. And that you have ministered to the saints and you do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end. That you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience, and patience inherit the promises. See, after the rebuke, after the warning, comes this encouragement, saying simply, this is what could happen if you don't change, but we have every confidence in you that you're going to mature, that you're going to continue to do the things that you're doing. And I would say that that would be our confidence as a pastoral staff, For this church, some of us have some growing up to do, but we are confident that that's going to happen. We are confident that you're going to endure and run your race. So, if you're a baby Christian, keep growing to maturity. If you're a mature Christian that has gone back to eating baby food, knock it off, (laughs) grow up, receive the blessings that God has in store for you, don't squander your calling or your gifts. If you're a mature Christian that is on the right track, continue to persevere. Examine your heart. Root out anything that may cause you to stumble. Heed the warning. Go back and check your foundation from time to time, but keep moving forward. And if you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ, he is better than anything that anyone else has to offer. And today can be that day. Today can literally change your life if you'd like to. If that's something you're interested, in, you can talk to me after the fact. Or um, we're going to have prayer; a few people up here for prayer later. You can come and chat with them as well. But now is a good time to examine our hearts. I'm going to ask Josh and everyone to come up. We're going to uh, take communion together, and we're going to do just that. We're going to examine our heart, but think about what we just talked about. Think about what we discussed. Are you a mature Christian that slipped back into immaturity? Are you a baby Christian that has no idea what's going on? Examine where you're at. Father, we, as I said at the beginning, are nothing without you. And I know that there are issues that each one of us is dealing with. I know that there are struggles and challenges. But Father, we cannot overcome any of those without knowing you. So right now, Father, I do ask if there are immaturities, spiritual immaturities in our life Maybe there's just one or two. Maybe as we went through that list, every single one of them applies to some of us. Whatever it is, wherever we're at, Father, we pray, I pray that we can have those things revealed to us, that our pride is moved out of the way, that humility is how we approach whatever work it is that you're doing in our lives right now. Father, I pray that we can submit to you through humility. That we can repent from those things that we need to repent from. And that we can persevere to the end. We thank you and we love you. In your name we pray, amen.